Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say that? The future has come to pass. Hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of I Survived the Rapture. Uh, I am your last minute wife. Shane Bazell, Lapsed Evangelical, along with... Your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. And, uh, man, you aren't kidding about Last Minute Wife. Uh, the, the few weeks in between uh, recording these two episodes, I, like, went on full-blown rants about that to, like, just random people. Because th- so far, this book has it hit the, the worst bit of editing, or a uh, uh, worst bit of writing we'll get into yeah it is it's insane like okay we we started this off going eh, this isn't as good as the first one and i think we both agree this final part is the best part of this not as good book but it's only because they decided to cram any of the plot that would happen into this final third and most of like the really good stuff is literally in the last 20 pages it's it's insane yeah i got a lot to say about this one, and I know you do too. So um, let's not waste any time and go ahead and get into part three of Tribulation Force. So when last we left off, we had our two boys, Eli and Moisha, the two witnesses at the Wailing Wall, had just breathed fire on another guy. Yeah, it was uh, this Muslim guy that decided to um, uh, attack the two witnesses, and then he got fire breathed on him. All of his weapons melted, and uh, and the gold chain that he was wearing all got melted into the pavement. Pretty graphic. Yeah, dude, it gets real Game of Thrones there for a second when it graphically describes the gold, the liquid gold leaking into his chest cavity. Ugh. I think I heard somebody say one time that a core component of certain stripes of Christianity is like enjoying or taking some sort of pleasure in watching the incineration of the people who aren't like you or who don't believe like you do, who aren't on your team. And that feels sadistic in a way that just feels uncomfortable. Right. And I guess that kind of goes back to like the pride that you're not going to hell. And like, that's the imagery usually associated with hell too. I agree. I think it's worth pointing out the fact that it was a Muslim assailant. This was pre 9-11. The word Muslim or the idea of a Muslim terrorist was not code for every single terrorist. Um, So that stereotype wasn't cemented. I'm actually interested to see like if uh, the tone changes at all with the post 9-11 books. I guess we'll see once that starts happening, but I, I I have a feeling that it might just slightly. Yeah, I think so too. I was too young to really pay attention to that the first time that I read these, and I also was reading them kind of too close to the events to really detect it. You know, so we'll we'll keep an eye out for that as we go forward. The the whole uh, Muslim attacking Eli and Moisha isn't the only uh, Islamophobic thing in this section. No, it is not. 
they're at the Golden Gate at the east of the Temple Mount, and uh, there's a bit of, and I'm, I'm unsure if this is actual, like, I don't think it is. This seems very much caricature. Uh, I'll, I'll just read uh, out of the eyes of, I think this is Sion bin Judah. And to show you how deep runs the animosity between the Muslim and the Jew, look at the cemetery the Muslims have built just outside the fence here. Jewish t- tradition says that in the end times, Messiah and Elijah will lead the Jews to the temple and triumph through the gate from the east. But a Elijah is a priest, and walking through a graveyard would defile him. So the Muslims have put one here to make the triumphal entry impossible. So I put that in my notes too. It's not inaccurate on a very technical level that there is a cemetery there, that it is a Muslim cemetery. What they're doing, and this makes me very angry at Jenkins and LaHaye, is they're putting it in the mouth of the character of Zion bin Judah, the rabbi that, that Buck has befriended. They are saying the Muslims have put a cemetery here to stop the triumphal entry to the Temple Mount as if it is a contemporary event. They're not saying it is, but there's an assumption there in the way that it's written, the verb tenses that are being used. That cemetery was built, I believe, during the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it was built around the time of the Crusades, if I remember correctly. I did a little bit of cursory research on it. It was built a long time ago. The specific reason for it being built there, there's not really any historical evidence for that. Now, there's assumption. You can, I definitely found sources that were like, it is assumed that this was built for this reason, but there's no uh, primary sources that say that that is why. So what they're doing, and if we're going to talk about Islamophobia, is they're specifically saying, oh yeah, this is a fact when it is spurious at best. Like it's, I mean, it's just, it's lacking in evidence. Like we don't have evidence that that's why, and that makes me extremely mad. And we're going to notice that as a theme in a lot of this part of the book is a lot of stuff, especially about Middle Eastern politics or about Abrahamic religion and religious scholarship are put forward as absolute fact that are just not questioned. Nobody fact checks them. You know, the people reading this aren't going to fact check it because they bought it in their Bible bookstore and they're just going to go ahead and like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it seems like they they just run with a lot of assumptions. And that's a thing that I've noticed uh, in a lot of the book as well. This entire series is about like one a particular wild interpretation of rapture theology. So this is like just part of the course, but... Yeah, this one is from Wikipedia. And I think that it is telling that the immediate following statement is citation needed. The Ottomans also built a cemetery in front of the gate to prevent a false precursor to the anointed one, Elijah, from passing through the gate. Citation needed. That should tell y'all, and you need to know that somebody on Wikipedia said it, but I couldn't find a single scholarly article that was able to corroborate that. And there's no citation on Wikipedia. If any listener just so happens to have a citation, yeah, if you, you know, know anything about that, hit us up. But, yeah, send it in, but God, like we're off to a great start here. Next, we have a, a small scene of Rayford and Steve Plank retorts, what chance would those two have against a sniper with a high-powered weapon? You uh, close the place down, clear out innocent bystanders, and shoot those two dead. Use a grenade or even a missile if you had to. And I don't know why, but I just got like, the 
the mental image of some like some Tom and Jerry or like Acme level like <laughs> antics of them firing a missile and like the guy back at Missile Command just dying. If it was Acme missiles, they would blow up and then his face would be covered in soot. And then he'd look <laughs> at the camera like, like uh, I feel like. And uh, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, that there's going to be some like hilarious uh, hijinks with Carpathia's ego uh, getting like ruptured a little bit and him like taking drastic measures to kill the the two witnesses. You're bringing up a good point um, because I I still think he's the best written character. Mm -hmm. You do start to see some of the cracks in his benevolent St. Nick mask manifest even more in this part of the book. He's starting to get a little frustrated. He's starting to lose his patience. He's calling for a little bit more violence, a little bit more heavy-handed approach to governance. I like that. I actually like that as as a character moment or a development moment for him. Sometimes I do applaud these books for their writing, and that's one of the moments. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with you there too, because there are uh, some good moments in here where like Carpathia is like getting like a memo and he's just like visibly upset and uh, it takes him a second to recompose. So it shows that he's not just this paragon of perfection that, okay, yeah, he actually does have some uh, some imperfections that begin to like pile up as the book goes on. It's important if we're looking at him as a dark mirror reflection of Jesus. Jesus also lost his temper. There are Bible passages of Jesus losing his temper. The guy got mad at a fig tree once and killed it with his magic God powers. If you don't believe me, look it up. I don't have chapter and verse, but Jesus withered a fig tree because he was hungry. Right. Uh, I do want to point out a couple of more things that are said uh, between Buck and Zion. Mm Mm-hmm. They put this in Zion's mouth as well. Judaism, modern Judaism has become too secular. Just as a definition for those of you who may not be familiar with that term in that context, secular meaning irreligious, non-religious, not concerned with spirituality. The idea of Judaism being too secular is that practicing folks would be looking at it as more of a life philosophy, more of a self-help thing. I think even Chaim says later, uh, I see Messiah as more of an idea than as a person. And that's the way a lot of modern religious folks feel. Like they believe science, they believe in the material world, they're not overly concerned with the supernatural or anything. They believe that there are good lessons and good points inside of a lot of these older holy books and they choose to adopt the good into their life and I can respect that. Yeah, and uh, myself included, I would uh, I would fall into uh, that kind of camp because I was just thinking about today because there uh, someone recently shared with me the, uh, I think it's like C.S. Lewis's trilateral dilemma where it's like either consider Jesus to be a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. And like my personal like interpretation is like, no matter which one of those things is true, that doesn't discredit all of like the wisdom and like good information in the Bible. But there's not really any way to really tell like which one of those things is accurate because none of us were around that that long ago. Yeah, to tip my atheist fedora at Mr. Lewis uh, there for just a second, he did forget one L. Oh, what's that? Legend. Ah, okay. That Jesus, or at least Jesus as the modern understanding of him is, did not exist. He was either a conglomeration of multiple teachers, 
He was a character invented to house multiple different teachers' ideas. I've kind of hinted at that, that that's a personal belief of mine in uh, in some previous episodes, but there's a lot of scholarship out there that's like, yeah, this guy may not have necessarily existed. You know, there's only so much you can glean from like Josephus that he was actually real. <laughs> I would like a little bit see uh, see the some merit in that because of how the Gospels were written like well after Jesus had died. So that brings up a few questions in that whole array. So yeah, I can definitely see that as a thing because the presence of like a legendary figure all throughout Christendom is very common. Like there's this one guy and a uh, one uh, Catholic saint that I refer to a lot just because he's one of my favorites, but, and he's the patron saint of actors. But the funny thing about this guy is he might not actually like have, have lived he, and he might just be a character invented by the Catholic church. So then, and you know, if the lessons that you can take away from the stories of a figure like that are good. And in a lot of cases, I believe they are no harm in it that yeah. I don't see a personal problem with that. Just like I take good lessons away from Lord of the Rings and star Wars and, you know, Dragon Ball Z. Like, I don't know. there's all kinds of fictional stories that, that help us learn things and lift us up. And I don't think there's a problem with kind of having one foot in the supernatural, but also the other foot firmly planted in reality and knowing you're kind of suspending your disbelief. I hate that this has become a rant on like our own personal feelings on spirituality, but it's, I promise that it's relevant Mm -hmm. because of one of the climactic moments in this book. And now you've mentioned the gospels and the gospels are going to come up later. Actually, they're going to come up in just a little bit. Let's go into chapter 15 then. Yeah, I would say let's roll into chapter 15. So Ray kind of goes looking for Buck. He checks back at the hotel. He has a conversation with Chloe. Chloe's weirdly calm for thinking that she just saw Buck get injured on national TV by fire breathing, guys. One of the things I did want to bring up as well is that Ray, I think it's Ray, thinks to himself, in many instances, the hand of God had revealed itself. More during Bible times, of course. And... I just wrote LMAO convenient because that's something that I heard all the time growing up. It's like, oh, miracles still happen. They still happen every day. I was like, cool. When's the sea going to part? When's the sun going to stop moving? Uh, When's water going to turn to blood? Because that sounds really cool. And they're like, well, God just doesn't really do that anymore. I was like, ah, got it. Okay. Yeah, and, like, that that was one of, like, the big things, like, for me growing up, like, one of the reasons I found faith uh, at the very beginning, because, like, all, like, you have, like, the Old Testament just having, like, these big monolithic things that would be pretty, like, life-shatter, like, life-changing to see and would totally change your outlook on spirituality. I like to call them showstopper miracles. Yeah, and none of that stuff happens anymore. And I guess one of, like, one of the ways I interpret it as an adult, and this is just getting to like a little bit of spirituality, but like even people that saw these like big miracles in the Bible, that didn't it didn't always move them. That's just one way you can interpret it. It's like, oh, even if he is doing this big stuff, that doesn't always like shake people. Another point. That uh, that ben, Jenna, ben Judah brings up that I went, okay, citation needed. He says, quote, the name of Jesus is as profane to the Jews as racial slurs and epithets. Okay, calm, calm down. Citation needed. <laughs> that, that's heavy handed. Holy heck. Like, no, absolutely not. No, I, and I would ask any of my Jewish friends, uh, is it okay if I say the word Jesus around you? <laughs> They're going to be, no, what's wrong with you? It's fine. <laughs> that's not That's not a thing. Like, it, no, incorrect. Now, if you were to 
try to like, you know, accost a Jewish person and start screaming, did you know you're wrong and Jesus is the Messiah? They'd be like, what are you doing? Leave me alone. <laughs> like, right. That's, that's very aggressive. And I'm kind of afraid of you right now. You, I don't know you. That's my purse. Leave me alone. <laughs> And like, God. is that what you're doing, Jerry? Are you running up to Jewish people and screaming Jesus is the Messiah in their face? Is that because then they might be offended? Oh, there's he's so high and mighty in this section, dude, for real. Because Ben Judah, like as much as I, I like him as a character, he is nothing more than a mouthpiece for their theology. And Nick even calls it out later. And my boy basically says, oh, so he's a so he's a Jewish convert. So what? Big deal. Ben Judah also rebuffs Buck's questions. And he's like, no, 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 no. Wait for my reveal. Wait for me. I, I can't talk about my research. I can't talk about this stuff. And he turns around and talks about the broadcast on CNN and says it's going to be watched by millions around the world. Uh, I mean, sure. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks of the Jewish faith would be interested. They kind of hinted that it's going to be more than Jewish people mm-hmm. that are going to be interested in this, that the world is going to be wrapped at attention. It's going to be bigger turnout than sporting events. And I, man, I don't know. I like Dr. Ben Judah has spent three years combing through biblical prophecy and, you know, all this scholarly work with his students trying to figure out without a shadow of a doubt who the Messiah is based on all the prophecies. And he's going to reveal that to the world. It's weird enough that he's doing it on CNN, um, but we got to remember these written in the 90s. He couldn't do it on like a live stream or anything like that. And he doesn't want to publish an article. This wants to be a big thing. And the plot needs the world to see this all at once. And it has to be a big dramatic thing. Right. But I don't know about it having more eyeballs on it than the Super Bowl. I uh, I think it would at least be like a big buzz. Like, but yeah, like I get what you're saying. Like a lot of people are like, uh, I mean, maybe the interest in, you could argue the interest in politics is like much more fervent because it's Nikolai and like everyone like, oh man, like I want to see what like Carpathia is up to and like what, what, like what's going on at all his events and stuff like that. Maybe there's like some draw to Carpathia in that, in that regard. And that's why a lot of people are tuning in. Maybe. But then we get that Ray wakes up the next day, finds that Nikolai has just bought every major media outlet. He did exactly what he told Bucky was going to do. He bought them all with all of his not George Soros Stonegal money, um, which again, never going to happen. Not possible. And he, and like when it, when we say all of them, it is all of them. I noticed there was like one that isn't listed in the book, but in the, like in my cop, like the physical copy I have, but in the audio book, it specifically mentions he buys Disney, but that's not in the, the, the text itself, but that's an mm. interesting thing. Uh, let's see, Turner News Network, Cable News Network, Entertainment and Sports Network, the Columbia Broadcast System, the American Broadcast Corporation, the Fox Television Network. This goes on and on and on for like a good paragraph just listing off. Nate, uh, Did you catch that Trinity Broadcasting Network was in there? Yep, I was just about to mention <laughs> So uh, that makes me wonder, is Trinity cheap because everybody went in the rapture and like there was nobody manning the phones like they could just get it? I get. Yeah, I guess there was just like a few guys that like were just there to uh, make a paycheck and they're like, man, like we don't we don't really got anyone here. Uh, Carpathia is offering us a lot of money. If we don't take this, we're going to be destitute. So screw it. All right. Yeah. Give Carpathia the give Carpathia the network. 
I was kind of wondering if that was a low key swipe at Pat Robertson. Oh, really? Like, I don't know. I don't know if there was drama. I don't know if they got along, him and LaHaye or, or them, but like, if it was, that's super catty. And I love it. Be like, oh, uh, in the tribulation, your your giant media, Christian media empire is gonna be bought by the Antichrist. I need to look into that, like if like what the uh inner evangelical tea is. Dude, there's gotta be so much because they are just catty, catty old boomers with so much money. And and I mean if you've seen Righteous Gemstones, you see the the enter pastor fighting is great. Which by the way, guys, uh, if you got HBO Max, watch Righteous Gemstones. Fantastic show. Uh, we actually are getting to a really big part of the book where uh, Zion ben Judah is uh, bringing Buck to Eli and Moisha. He manages to get Buck through a certain threshold where only Orthodox are allowed past. So they kind of describe where Eli and Moisha kind of hang out at the Wailing Wall. And um, they do have a guard that is both there to ostensibly protect them from onlookers, but it's really to protect onlookers from them in a big way. So they kind of go, they go at night and they have to go around a side space and there's a, uh, there are iron bars in between them. There's a fence up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to point something out. Buck speculates about Eli and Moisha being the biblical figures, Moses and Elijah, either reincarnated or have descended from heaven or whatever, because they won't talk about their origins. Mm -hmm. The Moses and Elijah thing, cool, like kind of cool, Yeah, not biblical. There's not really a biblical precedent for the two witnesses being those guys. That's just sort of a mishmash of like some stuff LaHaye read in one book, and then he saw the two witnesses thing and goes, all right, copy Moses and Elijah, paste here. It's it's another example of the potpourri blender approach to, to end times prophecy that LaHaye kind of practices. And then just says, oh, no, this is a fact. And like, I guess with that liberty he is taking, like the Eli and Moisha are some of the coolest characters in the book. So like at least he's uh, going against scripture for some good uh, writing, I guess. Some of the the very I mean, few. they're cool, and having them be these biblical patriarchs does give them some gravitas. Like it's neat. So I don't know what you took away from this section where Buck and Zion do get to speak one on one with the two witnesses. It's a big deal for Buck. Do you know, at least in your biblical knowledge, what is occurring here? Not exactly. Um, uh, what are uh, what were you alluding to? So during this exchange, what is occurring is it is a mirror of chapter three of the book of John ah. in the New Testament. Now, John chapter three is a very famous moment from the Bible, and even those of you who don't go to church a lot, even those of you who don't consider yourselves Christians, you might know John three because of a very specific verse in John chapter three. And it just so happens I have the entire section here that I think is relevant that I copied over, and if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and read from John chapter three. Go ahead. Read the uh, read of the chapter that finds its way onto every bumper sticker, church wall, and <laughs> <laughs> t-shirt, you know, painted on the wall. Like, God, it's everywhere. Right. If you, if you, if anyone knows just one verse of the Bible, it's going to be John three sixteen. but you continue. got it. So John chapter three, new international version, starting with verse one. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God is not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I was following along with John chapter 3 in the this chapter of Left Behind. It is almost word for word just quoting that book, and Eli and Moisha are just literally reciting those verses at Buck in uh, Zion. Yeah, and Zion is participating. Yeah. That's another important takeaway is that Zion is playing the role of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a Jewish religious sect or a religious group, and so they would have been considered, there were many teachers and rabbis kind of among the ranks of the Pharisees. And so this is someone who came to Jesus by night because you hear hear all the time in passion plays and, you know, retellings of the life of Jesus, that Jesus and the Pharisees didn't really get along. You know, his doctrine and their doctrine kind of clashed. So, but something clicked with Nicodemus. So he comes to Jesus and Jesus kind of lays it out for him. So when you're, you're a Christian and you're reading John chapter three, and you're also kind of going over John chapter three to people, John three is kind of the witnessing chapter Mm -hmm. because it's Christianity and Christian doctrine abridged. It's basically saying, here's the deal. God, loved the world. He gave them his son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is why this is what sin does. This is what God's will is. Believe in the son and you will be saved. The end. That's just Christianity, the process of becoming saved, the process of salvation in a nutshell right there. And uh, they even boiled it down even further at my church. We had a song called the ABC of Christianity. I'm not sure if I've talked about this on air or not, but it was a, th- it was a three-step program. You admit to God you're a sinner, believe Jesus is uh, God's son, and then you just confess your faith, and then boom, like that's all you need. Yeah. Totally. And so there is kind of a literary significance with this happening and Buck feels it like Buck's in the moment going, wow, I'm watching scripture be reenacted in front of me with these men who I know are from God. 
And it's kind of foreshadowing to that climactic moment we referred to earlier, specifically surrounding Dr. Ben Judah. Uh, oh, yeah. And a big thing that we hadn't highlighted about this Eli Moisha meeting is Zion is hearing them in Hebrew and Buck is hearing them in English. So they the the whole auto translate thing is uh, is still going on. Yeah, I think we had said in the previous episode that that is a pull from the book of Acts. Mm hmm. Um, the Acts of the Apostles is that on the day of Pentecost, which was the day that the Holy Spirit supposedly descended upon the early church and gave them the power and some of the godly favor to witness on behalf of Jesus after Jesus had ascended back to heaven, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak and everyone would hear it in their own language. And that is actually where the doctrine of speaking in tongues comes from. Um, you kind of take that idea and you stretch it and you roll it like taffy and you put it in a blender and then you dump it out into some Southern churches and you've got speaking in tongues <laughs> and to all the YouTube video hilarity that comes with it. And actually uh, what I grew up being taught was that when the Holy Spirit descended, you would speak in other tongues. That is probably another story and another testimony for another time. But yes, that is where the doctrine of speaking in tongues comes from is what is happening with uh, Eli and Moisha. They hear English, they hear Greek, they hear Hebrew. I think earlier they heard Spanish, Norwegian. Everybody's hearing from their own their own language. But after the Nicodemus thing, they go, yep, we're done. We will speak to you no more. And then they also hear it inside their own heads mm -hmm. when Buck plays the tape back. There are parts that the witnesses are speaking directly, like telepathically. But a Christian would say, they're speaking to your heart. Gotcha. Um, they wouldn't say anything like telepathy because that's new age satanic mysticism. Let's not forget that. We uh, we fast forward a little bit and we are on. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, between Jim Borland and uh, Buck, I believe. Yeah, I, I was going to bring up Borland. So Jim Borland lets Buck know, hey, man, uh, looks like you're going to be working for Garpathia after all, because Buck was going to refuse the offer. He was going to say, no, I'm good. I'm not going to take the Tribune job. Yeah, it looks like he doesn't have a choice because Garpathia owns every major news outlet. Dumb as that is. Including Global Weekly. Yeah, including Global. Yeah, that happens. They kind of have their little little exchange about that. The witnesses also start preaching against the signing of the treaty. They go from witnessing Jesus Christ as the Messiah and that being their normal shtick. They turn around and say, oh, by the way, guys, I know we've been talking about Jesus. This treaty signing with Israel, it's a tragedy. It's awful. It's terrible. And we are condemning it very vocally right now. And Nikolai demands CNN won't cover them as well. And that, that concludes uh, chapter 15. And uh, then we'll go into chapter 16 when they're in the international airport at Lod, which is nine miles southeast of Tel Aviv. Rayford's starting to uh, feel a bit weird because he this isn't really part of his plan. Are talking about uh, him and Chloe possibly having to move to New York. But it starts to allude that all of this, this stuff that's unfolding around him is God's plan that he just has to go with the flow. He quotes more scripture. They don't give chapter and verse, and I didn't look this one up. Of all the Bible references that I pulled up for this episode, the whole John chapter 3, and then we're going to get to Revelation 17, um, I didn't pull this one up. He says something that involves, I'll go where you send me, like a your will is my will kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
And if I can remember who that was later, I'll bring it up. But the whole, this is preordained by you. I'll go where you send me. Your plans are not my plans. That is something that evangelicals say a lot. Now, do most of them act on it? In my experience, no. But I think, you know, a lot of folks who are in the Christian tradition do. They realize that, you know, God knows more than they do. You hear that mysterious ways or his ways are not our ways submitting your will to God is a very important thing there. And Ray just sort of starts falling into that because it looks like he's kind of descending into the belly of the beast, not to make a revelation pun, but he kind of is. And he has a little conversation with God, just like, I'll go where you send me, which is a good character development moment in his spiritual journey. So we're still getting Ray having one of the more believable Christian, what they might call a Christian walk Mm -hmm. than anybody else in the story. Moving on from that, uh, we get to uh, Buck with President Fitz, uh, Fitzhugh, and he kind of like impromptu gets him, and uh, he has this aide named Rob, and I'll get to why I mentioned Rob, because I have a prediction. President Fitzhugh is described as a younger version of Lyndon Johnson. He uh, uses profanity liberally, which they don't actually put that in this book, unfortunately, but they do. Like <laughs> They'll just be like, he did a swear whenever. Yeah, they, they will fun. say he swore, but they won't actually say what it was, which, you know, I'll take it. I'll take it above, uh, gosh, darn, G Willikers, <laughs> like we kind of had in the first book. I like him being, quote, a younger version of Lyndon Johnson. I don't know if this is to set him up as a positive or a negative because um, Johnson was Democrat and we know that, you know, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins probably don't think too highly of Democrats. And he also brought in the civil rights movement, which uh, we know LaHaye didn't like. Uh, but then again, Johnson also uh, would refer to his uh, his ding dong as Jumbo oh. on calls with people. So Johnson was kind of, he was something else. <laughs> Johnson liked to talk about his Johnson. <laughs> Yeah, if you guys don't know, if you've never listened to any of the the recorded calls with Lyndon Johnson, he burps, he farts on calls. Like, that dude did not care. Not the most presidential president we've ever had, but, you know, he got some good stuff done. Right, and uh, Buck still got clout because uh, American members of the press are like, whoa, how's he talking to Fitzhugh? We've waited so long for that. The aide named Rob, he, uh, when Fitzhugh calls everyone out of the room, Rob almost leaves and's like, no, Rob, I need you. And I have a prediction because about the conversation that we're about to hear, Rob listens to everything and I have a feeling Rob's going to leak. Like some, or, or- Oh, you think Rob's going to be a rat? Yeah. All right. It's just, that's just a prediction. Like, cause the- I don't remember, I don't remember Rob and in that capacity, but I I'll go there with you. I wouldn't be surprised. Right. And, uh, cause like, he's the only one, uh, in the room other than him and Buck for this, uh, conversation Fitz, he was just like, what is going on with Carpathia? Like nothing's making sense here. Like he's, he's trying to steal my plane. What What's going on? No, he already stole your plane, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's too late. He stole your plane. Um, did we talk about that in the last episode? How Carpathia was just like, oh, they're going to let me borrow the plane. And then I'm just going to tell everybody, oh, look, he was so nice. He gave me his plane. Fitz, he was like, well, I got a half a mind to like tell him like what I think. And Rob's like, um, that won't work. You'll just get lampooned in the media. <laughs> yeah. The media he now owns. Uh, he does say Carpathia is the most popular man since Jesus. So womp womp. <laughs> that's a, that's low hanging fruit for a, Real easy, yeah. We find out that Buck actually uh, voted for Fitzhugh in his second term, but not his first one. 
Apparently, the American militia is giving the U.S. some trouble with this because they're uh, upset about the uh, destroy 90, give 10 to the U.N. sort of deal. And just like all, all the other political changes going on. Can we talk about the militia thing for a second? Yeah, go ahead. That that uh that hits a, a little bit weird uh, at time of recording. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna give a little bit of the the inside look into this. Um, we're recording this on the 9th of January, 2021. Recently, a horde of uh, Trump supporters all got together and decided they were gonna storm the U.S. Capitol building. Five people lost their lives. It was a tragedy. It was an embarrassment. They got nothing done. It was overall just a real big black mark on our history and, you know, just kind of makes me hang my head um, in a big way. And a lot of the people involved in that are either members of or an inspired by what would be considered the American militia movement. I am not an expert on the militia movement, just like I'm not an expert on a lot of things that aren't Metal Gear Solid. But the militia movement, for for those of you who may be a little younger, uh, didn't live through the 90s, typically right-leaning, sometimes more right-libertarian than right-authoritarian-leaning, but, you know, they can mix and match. Folks who think that it is a good idea to buy a lot of weapons and train to be sort of a paramilitary force, and they can range from pretty highly trained, organized, some of them own compounds, kind of scary groups of folks, to basically would amount to LARPers with a lot of expensive hardware. No less dangerous, but definitely a lot more funny. And they've been around for a long time. They kind of fall into that same prepper, Alex Jones, conspiracy, anti-New World Order group of folks, um, which we now would probably pull QAnon into into that Big Ten conspiracy. It's a a whole thing. I'm not going to say that being a member of a militia in and of itself is inherently bad. I think that organizations with the ability and the skills to provide aid, to provide help, you know, let's say, God forbid, the U.S. was ever attacked by a foreign enemy, that would be a positive thing. Mm -hmm. But the way it manifests and the kind of culture that springs up around it has typically attracted more radical far-right elements than anything else. Folks who are kind of reading the Turner Diaries and going to a lot of gun shows, you know, may have some tattoos that might make you go, ugh. The militia movement, not the kind of folks you'd normally want to picture as heroes. (laughs) In a lot of cases, at least in how they manifest in reality and not in in theory. So the fact that they keep getting brought up should definitely raise an eyebrow. Right. And because that kind of uh, ties into part of the reason that we even began this series is because these books contain like dangerous, I guess, assumptions that can help foster the mentality that, that causes these kind of events to occur. I am going to go ahead and call it right now. For those of you who know what I mean, um, and for those of you who don't, there's a lot of information out there. These books, by the end, start to read like the Turner Diaries for Evangelicals. Oh, whoa. Less practical knowledge, but still the same kind of self-insert fiction. And I don't want to be too negative there, but that is kind of where we're going. Oh, the last thing I want to mention is they they mentioned that uh, the global community is going to have like 10 members of a security council that report as subordinates to their ambassadors. And that would make basically these 10 ambassador kings under Carpathia 
so you have Carpathia and like some ten kings to rule them all kind of deal. Yeah, did you catch? Uh, did you catch the revelation imagery attached to that? The, isn't it the like the ten crowns upon the serpent or something like that? You got it, dude. Yep, yeah. it's the beach with ten horns and ten crowns, my man. There we go. So when it says kings of the world, and I went ahead and pulled. Look at that, Shane pulled a Bible verse. <laughs> Before I get to that, though, um, I did mention that Fitzhugh's kind of going off on a rant and he goes, yeah, I get that our conflict of interest laws were a little strict. And I was like, seriously, man, like regular media conflict of interest laws, if anything, aren't strict enough. And so he just kind of throws that in there. And also the fact that the, um, the these militias are hoarding heavy weaponry. If you hear that that's happening on the news in your everyday life, that is something to be worried about. Anytime a militia in the United States gets its hands on heavy weaponry, you should be concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a good thing. Also, Carpathia is not only controlling the media, he's also the CEO of the Global Community Bank, and he's the commander-in-chief of the new uh, UN military forces. So he's consolidating everything. He's basically going to become president of the world, which is why they want to give him a new title, not just secretary general of the UN. And uh, they haven't given him that title yet in the book, have No, they haven't. You're right. They haven't given it that title yet. Gotcha. I also want to say for folks whose family members are very invested in some of the right-wing conspiracy theories, especially that are being thrown around this week involving, you know, some of the things that are going on on social media and some of the stuff that's that stuff that's spilled over into real life. Because, man, yeah, this is hitting different in uh, in now in 2021. Right. The worries about a coming new world order have not gone away. The same stuff that we are seeing in these Left Behind books, people are posting on their Facebook walls, and now they're posting on Parler, at least for now. <laughs> <laughs> With the future of Parler up in the air. They're posting on Twitter a little bit and, you know, for now, but it's it's real and this is the stuff people are believing in. And part of the reason why, like Gavin said, we do this show is because we saw this rhetoric coming back and we're like, hey, it's it's been here. These people have always believed this, at least in our lifetime. So let's talk about the beast. The beast. And Babylon and all this cool stuff that you always hear in uh, in like cool apocalyptic stuff. By the way, I redownloaded Darksiders 1, 2, and 3 to get my Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse kind of kick. That was my purchase spree I went on this week. Oh, nice. Real fun. They're like God of War, but some other different things. Gotcha. Um, and they're super like Todd McFarland, like caricature designs. They're really cool. I watched a Let's Play of it years ago and the art's really 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 good yeah yeah and the new one's like dark souls i really like it you get to play as fury um who i guess is supposed to be strife or i don't i don't know they don't really stick too close to the biblical canon but well, neither did tim lahan and jerry b jenkins <laughs> got him <'em. Got> <laughs> man oh weird dude we're we're shooting from the hip today <laughs> like i think trip force made us mad oh yeah yeah this uh this book made me angry uh, and moving on to the next section real quick, uh, you get Heim Rosenweig and Buck uh, at the whole uh, meeting on CNN. Carpathia, and I highlighted one of the lines in his speech where he says, first, my beloved friend and mentor, a father figure to me, the brilliant Dr. Heim Rosenweig of Israel. And uh, the reason I highlight that is he also called, I believe, Stonegal like a father figure. So just a prediction. 
Carpeggia is going to kill Heim. Yeah, dude. Um, he did. Uh, hey, real quick, before we move on, uh, you mind if I read from Revelation real quick? Yeah, go for it. All right, so um, this is relevant to the Ten Horns and the Ten Crowns, the Ten Kings of the World, because like you said, the Ten-Member UN Security Council is going to subordinate their countries. Basically, the heads of state of those countries report to the Security Council members who will report to Carpathia, making Carpathia the president of the world. From Revelation chapter 17, starting with verse 3. And the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness where I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and adorned with the gold and precious stones and pearls. She held in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, a mysterious name was written. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Skipping to verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns and the beast that you saw will hate the prostitute. They will leave her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by uniting to give their kingdoms to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Oh, wow. So there you go. That's some powerful imagery. Dude, it's kind of rad. Like it's when you think of John of Patmos who wrote Revelation, who is not the apostle John that followed Jesus. He was a different guy. Mm-hmm. And he was writing way, way later. Pretty much this was all written about Rome and not about things that were going to happen in the 2020s or whenever or the 1990s. You know, he's writing in code. He's trying to he's trying to let the early church know like, hey, these are the things that God is going to do, or at least that I think God is going to do to save us from the Roman Empire. But when you extrapolate it out so literally like Jenkins and LaHaye are doing, they're like, oh, we're going to build essentially Dubai in, at the site of the original Babylon. And it's going to be the seat of power for the whole world, you know, forget the massive undertaking that that would be. So that's where you get the idea of the whore of Babylon. Um, In the NIV, they say prostitute, but whore comes in KJV. Mm -hmm. This is another quote from Left Behind or from uh, Tribulation Force. Nikolai Carpathia was on a course foretold centuries before and the drama would play out to its end. And I kind of asked like, what's the point then? Why is the Tribulation Force going to like oppose him if everything's going to go according to God's plan anyway? Like not to get too predestined nation e but i'm only doing it because the book's doing it well i i guess the uh the rationale there would be that like the tribulation force is like a manifestation of god's will i guess i guess and that's kind of where the predestination argument always goes doesn't it mm-hmm. well it's predestined but we have to play our role and if we don't play our role then and i'm like yeah but you could just not play your role then how is it predestined like that just, it bothers me it bothers me a lot you were kind of getting forward onto the actual signing of the treaty, so I'll let you take that over. So Fitzhugh began to speak, and Buck knew that Carpathia was at work, so we get another instance of dark magic because Fitzhugh is just really, really impassioned about Carpathia all of a sudden, and that's in contrast to the last vignette when he's really, really like nervous about Carpathia and worried that Carpathia is about to take over the world. He starts like just being like a big fanboy to him. He even says, the last thing I want to do at a moment like this is attract any way from the occasion at hand. However, with your kind of indulgence and 
that of a, a great leader of the aptly renamed global community, I would like to make a couple of brief points. And then he makes a, he does a spiel. And then Carpathia starts like looking uncomfortable. Like he's being showered with too much praise. And even like once he gets the microphone says, I apologize for my over exuberant friend who has been too kind and too generous and to, to whom the global community owes a tremendous debt. I took something a little bit different away from that reading. Did it seem to you like Fitzhugh was laying it on a little thick on purpose? And I only say that because we know what's going to happen a little later. Uh, maybe. It's uh, it's uh, it's up in the air. Maybe I'm just searching for more hints of Carpathian mysticism. And maybe it is that. Like maybe he put the whammy on him too hard. Yeah. He, he did a little bit too good of a job. Like that episode of What We Do in the Shadows where they give the guys the brain scramblies. Mm-hmm. Like they both try to hypnotize him at the the same time and he forgets his own name <laughs> maybe that i don't know so yeah there ray is at the signing buck is at the signing um they're all talking about how much they miss bruce but just to talk about bruce for a second bruce has been busy and he's gonna be busy for a while eventually bruce starts traveling the world oh yeah witnessing and he is part of what they talk about with the billions of souls harvested to Christ. Now, we say soul harvest, and that's one of the titles of the later books, and that sounds kind of grim. It's not. They they mean, by harvest of souls, they mean people will convert to Christ. Mm-hmm. And Eli and Moisha are the start. Eli and Moisha convert the 144,000 Jews who are then saved, who then, that 144,000, go out to all the kingdoms of the earth and prophesy and preach and convert. That's the plan. When we talked about in the first book, God not really giving people that chance to come to him, according to LaHaye, there is a built-in plan and there are going to be souls won for the kingdom during this period. That's one of the aspects that's built in, which in a way is encouraging. And when I was a kid and constantly worried about being left behind, this was encouraging to me is that I would get that second chance um, as long as I wasn't on an airplane where the pilot disappeared, you know? Right. And then finally in this chapter, and I'm just, uh, we're a bit cut for time right now. So I'm just trying to speed along. Let's see. So at the, at the wall, the two witnesses after the signing happens, they call out, thus begins the last terrible week of the Lord. The seven year week had begun the tribulation. Cue music. Yeah, dude. And did you get one of the other yucky lines from there? Uh, What was the other yucky line? God's chosen people had signed a deal with the devil. Oh man. Yuck, dude. (laughs) It's bad, dude. Right. Oh, it's so gross. But yeah, that takes us into chapter 17. Like it's such a, like it just hits on those anti-Semitic tropes like in a way that isn't as overt but it's right there it's basically saying like the jewish people are going to make this mistake and it's that patronizing like oh if they only knew so we jump into chapter 17 buck and Hyam are talking about the messiah and this is the chapter where we get dr ben judah's findings are revealed right Hyam and buck have a conversation buck almost gets to witness to him but not quite and Hyam says look man I don't believe Messiah is a uh, is a person. I believe it's more of an idea. I'm a rational man. I'm a scientist. But hey, if it is a person, look no further than Nikolai. Uh, just a, a quick little mention of like one of the a funny joke that happens at the very beginning. Uh, they show Rayford and Buck's name on TV, but they get them wrong, and they're Raymond Steele and Duke Wilson. <laughs> Just, I missed that. Yeah, I forgot yeah, about that. Screen and uh, they're just wrong. So Raymond and Duke, which honestly, those names are a little bit better. 
Raymond Steele and Duke Wilson. <laughs> they are a little bit better. They're just slightly better by like like just a couple of degrees. We need to change our podcaster names to Raymond Steele and Duke Wilson. About <laughs> Duke Steele and Raymond Wilson. So yeah, you were so they had their conversation. And then Buck gets extended another invitation from Dr. Ben Judah. Let's see. And that's to come accompany him to the ICNN studio. Yep, but first they go to lunch. Okay, yeah. This is uh this is one of the the cool little uh moments of it where like he talks about how like usually people that eat lunch with him order their own thing and don't order what uh Zion gets, but then Zion always orders extra because he he wants to make sure that they get to try what he he's having in case they get jealous yeah we get kind of a george r R. martin food description here which did make me hungry you know if i had somebody who was a native to any country i was visiting and who was just like look man let me order for you i'd be like all right (laughs) always if you're traveling abroad and you got somebody who can make a recommendation take their recommendation right get out of your comfort zone people yeah yeah try new foods so Buck actually gets his opportunity to kind of go for broke and uh, witness to Dr. Ben Judah. He gets to tell his testimony, like we discussed in some of the earlier episodes. And they kind of yada, yada, yada through it. They don't let Buck just say the same thing over and over because that would get kind of boring. Mm-hmm. But then it just recaps the first book. It's not anything huge. But then what's happening on the plane? So Rayford, this is the part where Rayford turns on CNN, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, Rayford turns on CNN. He uh, he even like gets called into a meeting with Carpathia, and he's just like, "Hey, I, this is a really important broadcast. I want to uh, catch." And he's like, "Oh no, no, yeah, yeah. Turn turn it on in here." This is where we both get one of the big climaxes of the book, and we start to see Carpathia's visage start to like crack even more. Because uh, let's see, Zion Ben Judah starts out and says, "I promise not to bore you with the statistics. But let me say there are many more." these prophetic passages many of those prophetic passages are repetitive and some are obscure but based on our careful study we believe that at least 109 separate and distinct prophecies messiah must fill we have consulted a mathematician and asked him to calculate the probability of even 20 of the 109 prophecies being fulfilled in one man he came up with the odds of one in one quadrillion 125 trillion that's another part where i just go citation needed who's this mathematician yeah just like hey calm down (laughs) all right so i gotta i gotta rattle off a few of my my thoughts on this and then i want to hear yours as well go ahead um first of all ray says oh i expected an ancient rabbi with a long white beard right ray because rabbis are wizards i don't know dude what why that's a weird passage like To get more serious into the scholarship part here, Ben Judah specifically calls out Alfred Edersheim. If you weren't aware, Alfred Edersheim was a real person. This is where Jenkins and LaHaye kind of get into Lovecraft territory of like trying to bring some veracity to their fiction by citing real world people, even if they're ones you may not have heard of. So Edersheim actually was a Jewish convert to Christianity and a biblical scholar known especially for his book, The Life and Times of Jesus and the Messiah, written in 1883. So Edersheim is a person that Christian apologists will cite quite 
quite a bit. An apologist is someone whose job it is to basically go through both religious scholarship and uh, secular scholarship and prove that Christianity is true. It is a whole cottage industry. And back when I was a Christian, it was actually a scholarly discipline I was considering for college. I was looking at possibly going to a Christian university to study apologetics. So I was a real nerd for this shit back in the day. So that was what I noticed about Edersheim. Um, He jumps in and says 456 Messianic passages, 558 references from ancient rabbinical writings is what they studied. There are a lot of passages that could be construed as Messianic prophecy, just like everything else in this book. The jury's out. Scholars argue. It's not settled. Mm -hmm. He gives this weird analogy about postcards, about how you can narrow down something like this. He's basically kind of giving the laymen who are reading this book a crash course in literary and biblical scholarship and historical scholarship. Did you catch that? Uh, A little bit, especially towards like the latter part of his speech where he just starts listing off all of the requirements for Messiah that are present. So what else did you take away from this? Like this was one of the more engaging parts of the book, like um, especially in his uh, latter part of his speech. I just highlighted like almost all of it because there's just like so much interesting stuff that he starts spouting out. Specifically quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He starts rattling off that the Messiah has to be born of a virgin. He has to be born of an extremely rare bloodline from the line of Shem, one of Noah's three sons, and then of Abraham's two sons. God only chose Isaac, which eliminates half of Abraham's progeny of who it could be. One of the two sons of Isaac, Jacob, received the blessing and passed on to only one of his 12 sons, Judah. And uh, he just goes on and on, like breaking down the elimination factor of who the Messiah could be. Yeah, and you hear those names get thrown around in Christian, I'm just going to call them memes. They're memes in kind of the classical sense. These things you hear Jesus referred to and God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lion of Judah, the Son of David. So you hear all of these things get put around. All that stuff has roots in this sort of messianic prophecy stuff that Jesus is supposed to fulfill. Real interesting thing. We find out Nikolai Carpathia, born in Bethlehem. Huh. Did you catch that? I thought that was just a joke that they put because they said, Nikolai, he said, you are you were born in Bethlehem and moved to Cluj, right? Ha ha. No, dude, I think I think Chaim is actually thinking that Ben Judah might say Nikolai. I think Chaim is kind of there for it. Oh, okay. If that's the case, maybe, but that's that's funny. Like, it might be a joke. Well, yeah, because others shush him when he said that and Carpathia looks unfazed. Yeah. And, and Carpathia even makes the prediction like, oh, he's just going to claim to be Messiah. So, like, I don't think he uh, he's figuring that Carpathia himself is that. Let's see. And he says, if I have more time, uh, I could share with you dozens more prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures that point to the qualifications of Messiah. I'll broadcast a phone number at the end of this broadcast and order all the print material from our study. And then he just gets into the final thing where he just full-blown professes that Jesus is the Messiah very boisterously, boldly, and then the entire television network starts freaking out. Yeah, boom, big reveal. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Whoa, B- big, big news, guys. And uh, yeah, they, they don't even put the number on the television. They and But he reads it aloud. Everyone's like, cut it, cut it. Like, pull the plug, pull the plug. The stream goes dark. It's a very Aaron Sorkin moment. Yeah, I don't know if you've, have you ever watched Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? I have not. It's basically Aaron Sorkin trying to write a behind, like it's Aaron Sorkin trying to write 30 Rock, but make it like serious. And it's like, what if Saturday Night Live had to fight for freedom of speech to get their controversial sketches on the air? I think it's Judd Hirsch who is is doing the the bit at the beginning. And he basically says, like, comedy's not real anymore. And he starts going off and, like, they're like, cut his feed, cut his feed. And it felt like the, op- the pilot episode for Studio 60. And it was so dumb. Because, <laughs> like, all right, man, like, I get, but, like, I kind of agree with Nikolai. All right, so the Christians have a, a high-profile rabbi convert. So what? Lots of people think that this isn't news. Yeah, and, like, uh, and that's what the thing I was kind of, uh, like, when I was just like, man, big news. It's like, yeah, like, I don't think on CNN, if you just had a rabbi proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, that would necessarily sway too many people. I guess it would, like, some people. Like good portion of people, especially if he was a high profile guy, but there's already a Jewish sect. It's called Messianic Judaism. They practice the traditional Jewish modes of worship and modes of study and everything else, but they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's that's it. You know, they still consider themselves Jews, but they're like, no, we, we've had the Messiah has come and he will come again. I've actually had some conversations with a, with a Messianic Jewish rabbi, and that's their belief. It, it isn't news. So for LaHaye and Jenkins to make this huge production out of it rings really hollow. Like, and it makes sense to get the 144,000 prophecy thing off the ground. And it serves the story, but it just doesn't feel earned to me. Like a lot of things in this book that don't feel earned, it didn't work for me. And the other thing is that a lot of these prophecies, they're saying, all right, he was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was despised and rejected by men. His garments were divided up amongst the people and they cast lots for them. All of these things that were in those prophecies and saying, all of these things happened to Jesus. All right, bro, you have the Gospels as a source for that, but you don't have other sources. But, I mean, again, mainstreamers reading this don't understand that, and it really bothers me. <laughs> like, I've said that a lot this episode, but it's bugging me, man. He, they're just taking the Gospels at face value when there's a lot of research and evidence that point to the fact that stuff in the Gospels is kind of shooting the arrow and painting the target around it later mm-hmm. when it comes to those prophecies, basically saying Jesus is the Messiah. So we're going to write all this stuff in here long after he died, if he ever lived. And then we're going to say, oh, he did all these things because we know these prophecies because some of us may be, you know, religious scholars or something else. You know, we're at least learned as far as the Old Testament scriptures go. So we're going to put this stuff in there. This all bothers me quite a bit because if he truly did fulfill all these prophecies, there'd be a lot more Jews who believed it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's kind of dismissive of those folks. Like, yes, definitely there are folks who are, who are Jewish who do believe he was, but I think it's kind of unfair to say that this whole swath of people just missed it. It is kind of a, a dismissive, like high and mighty sort of thing to like proclaim like, oh, you you all are fools that just didn't see the truth when it came. And I, I definitely agree with you on that. 
And moving on, we have this like a, a quick little vignette before we get into chapter 18, where Sion Ben Judah comes home and his wife is just like, I love you and support you, but like our lives are ruined, man. Yeah, that poor woman. The rabbi actually gets a call from Eli. He's just like, hey, good job. You ba- you have the, the protection of God on you. No one's going to harm you. If they, and if they try to, they're going to have to come through us. Yeah, they mess with you. They mess with us, and you see what happens when people mess with us. We beat fire on them. Look, hey, if if I'm going to get supernatural protection, I prefer it's those guys. Right. And then what happens, Gav? We get an 18-month time skip. We are now in Left Behind Shippuden. Right off the bat, we get uh, a character that has only been mentioned once before. And this is Amanda White. And Surprise wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all of a sudden, just after 18 months and being mentioned only once, she's, they're, they're already talking about, oh man, like Buck better pop the question because uh, I'm going to get married to Amanda before uh, you get married to Buck, Chloe. And like, where did this come from? I wrote that in big letters in the margin of my of the first page of chapter 18 where did this come from yeah dude it feels like <laughs> i'm getting really worked out really like we both had stuff that made us mad <laughs> during this episode and i could tell this was it for you huh yeah yeah like after because the, the 18 month time skip okay i get it the the books are slow pacing come on just go ahead and like get to some parts that are interesting and that are uh, they're good. I get it. But after you spend like 50 fucking pages, like, <laughs> like harping on like shy fingers, cookie plot, and just meticulously going over every little detail of Buck and Chloe's like dumb love plot, you're just going to be like, oh, Rayford got a GF now. <laughs> I hate it. No. Like, <laughs> I. <laughs> This made me you're mad, right. like on so many levels, like it. Because and- yeah, you're right. Because they had so many pages. Like, if only this book wasn't, you know, standard novel length, and they had all these pages beforehand to tell us all of this stuff instead of backloading it, like into a. Oh, by the way, and then and then and then and then and then all this happened. Uh, and like we've already like dropped the ball that like a marriage is like the marriage is gonna happen. Oh yeah. Uh, I I believe. Hold on. Let me just double check real quick. Uh, yeah, it's thirteen pages between Amanda White's second mention and the marriage of Rayford and Amanda White. Thirteen pages. Yeah, dude. <laughs> After you had to tell the entire history of that that whole cookie subplot, you're just going to shove all of the development of the main protagonist's love interest in 13 pages. And the whole, like, buildup of their first date isn't even, like, really that good either. It's subpar as well. Well, it kind of screws us over, too, because now we've got to, like, go down because there's nothing to really talk about because they just sort of say and then and then and then all these things happen so we got to now do the same thing mm-hmm. so yeah they catch up with a big lore thing enigma babylon one world faith has come together under peter matthews they declare that christians are the height of intolerance and disunity and has declared them heretics 
along with Orthodox Jews, because you've got to remember that when the temple was rebuilt, Orthodox Jews began the sacrificial rites, again, as they were in the Old Testament, to hasten the coming of the Messiah. So you have two religions out there that are not joining in Enigma Babylon and that are keeping to the old ways, and they are being labeled heretics. That's going to pose problems later. Oh, yeah, I, I bet. Of course, Eli Moish is still there. They're condemning him. Uh, Israel remains unbelieving and will suffer for it. Great, more kind of anti-Semitism stuff. The witnesses start calling out Nikolai directly on the day of the temple dedication. And Nikolai, like you said earlier, the mask is starting to crack. He really doesn't like these guys. He's like, get these guys out of here. Then some weird supernatural stuff happens, which is really cool. And I would have liked to have heard this elaborated on in the scene. They sacrifice a cow at the temple. The blood turns into water. And then the water in the basement or the basin turns into blood. That's so metal. And I didn't get to see it. I just hear that it happened. Yeah. yeah. And like, like, like so much is wasted in this last, uh, like this last bit. This weird lore jump is baffling to me. It is very baffling. And it just, it's just, why? Why did you do this? Write a different book. Buck gets fed up with uh, global communities, like media things. So he's just like, oh yeah, as soon as I can get like a secure server, I'm going to make my anti-global community website. Yeah, he Buck is going to be Julian Assange now. Buck's going to make InfoWars. Yeah, Buck's going to be InfoWars. Oh my God, you're right. That's a better analogy than Julian Assange. Stanton Bailey, Marge, and all the old guard at Global have been fired. Nikolai, like I said earlier, builds Dubai in Iraq. And like you said, uh, Amanda White, just immediately Rayford's girlfriend. Uh, So you want to talk about Amanda for a minute just to fill everybody in on her? Yeah, okay. So apparently Amanda had started going to church with Irene and she even like forgot Irene's name and like didn't uh, but she was like a core part of her getting uh, converted and then after the uh, rapture she made her way to new hope and then started becoming a more active believer so we have the whole it's kind of like uh, they don't really say it like this but it's almost like Irene is like giving Amanda like the blessing to do this almost because Amanda lost her own family as well. So boom, you have Rayford that lost pretty much all of his family. And then Irene kind of brought them together inadvertently. We have a really creepy line after Amanda has dinner with Chloe and Rayford and just gets them up to speed on how like she knows who Rayford and Chloe are. Uh, Rayford chuckles, I do want to hear impressions of your mother. Which is a little, I don't know, that that hit me weird. Where immediately, just on that first day, it's like, oh man, she could be your mama, Chloe. Oh God. And yeah, they rush it a lot. And hey, you clearly had no problems drawing a romance subplot out in the first two thirds of this book you made me read. Why not draw it out now? It's such a weird choice. And I think it's, if I'm looking at this cynically, I honestly think it's just to get to a specific moment that they have later. But I'll, I'll point that out when we get to it. So Bruce is traveling worldwide, witnessing like a madman. Um, he says the year and a half of peace is coming to a close. I'm not sure, and this is something I did not get a chance to look up, because the tribulation, the seven years, is supposed to start at the signing of the treaty. Mm-hmm. I don't remember them mentioning the year and a half of peace. 
I don't know if they're now saying the year and a half of peace is part of the seven years or if it's separate and it actually now kicks off at the end of the year and a half. I don't know. I think the year and a half of peace is supposed to be Eli and Moisha's like time to witness. Gotcha. So that was that like, that's what the time skip was. It was like, oh, this is a time of peace. So nothing's like really happening now. Maybe like in, uh, I'm not sure. I I'll have to look that up again. Um, I'm a little fuzzy on that. Right, Cause I would check out cause it's 18 months. So it's exactly a year and a half. Yeah. They mentioned that Amanda was from a dead church. Not only is that something that's mentioned in the book of revelation, that's also something you hear a lot as a trope in uh, evangelical discussion churches that are just kind of like social clubs mm-hmm. and not really spiritually active and fighting for the kingdom are considered dead churches. So much relationship stuff. A lot of like, when are they going to kiss? When are they going to propose? Like that kind of stuff. But like you said, it gets crazy rushed. Yeah. The weirdest thing about like the whole kiss subplot that goes on is like you have Chloe and Rafer being like, has he has he kissed you by now? And then scene change. And the first line is, in fact, Buck would never forget the first time he had kissed Chloe, which that was like a really awkward scene change. It's just weird. And then you, you find out, you know, they give you a little bit of background of Amanda, that she's an executive. And they say at one point, she's a long way from frumpy white trash. Why say that? Right. Yeah. Why is that in there? Ugh. Just, just more lines that are frustrating me, dude. I, I don't remember that much of Nikolai, but I hope that the next book kind of cleans up from here. Let's go ahead and, and close out chapter 18 with Ray and Buck both propose in the same building, like at the same time, a room over from each other. Uh, Amanda like just gives up her job to do it. She's just like, oh man, yeah, of course. Like, uh, as a good Christian woman should, Gavin. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, like, oh man, I have this gotcha with the like, clothing store executive position, but this man that I met in this 18-month time skip, uh, I just, I love him. Yep, love him. And uh, what the heck? We only have this much time anyway. I don't need a job. We're, we're galloping toward the finish line like a couple of horsemen. Um, chapter 19, Buck meets with Fitzhugh. Uh, the president has kind of been uh, like reduced to a, it says a tragic figure, reduced to a mere token. So the presidency is kind of akin to how the royal family is in, in the United Kingdom. Like they're just there for show, but Carpathia is like kind of like the parliament acting like that, doing all the actual stuff. Yeah, they trot him out as a figurehead, but, you know, he doesn't really matter. We find out that the president is going to make a move on Carpathia, possibly backed by these militias. That is every militia man's fantasy in a lot of ways is that they will be called upon by a president that they like to defend the nation. There's a line that I just put the the, the word what beside because <laughs> it said, but the most shattering thing is in Fitzhugh's mind that the U.S. public had so easily accepted the president's demotion. I don't think that would be, a, that would be realistic in that no. scenario. No, it wouldn't. No. So they, we find out, according to Bruce, that's going to initiate World War III if the president makes a move on Carpathia. So you finally get World War III mentioned. Yep. Then the two couples get married in Bruce's office together. We have our two weddings. <laughs> yeah, the, it's only uh, Bruce uh, and then the two couples. It's only the five of them. They get married 
and they uh, they show like Buck asked to see the underground shelter and they do and it's really small and there's the line that you know it'd be chaos if the entire church body show up here in time of danger so I'm encouraging everyone to build their own I put beside that I bet that there's a, an instance where too many people have to get crammed in there and it's a big tense moment that just seems like something that they would elaborate upon in a future book I might just I be don't remember um, I don't remember, but I wouldn't count on it because I don't think this book writes moments like that. That would be a Chekhov's gun that has to go off, and I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess I'm just uh, hoping that they have more literary uh, competence than they actually do. Because, like, come on, like, Jerry B. Jenkins, you've written, like, 90 bajillion books. Act like it, buddy. Right. Like, come on, we like we have Chekhov's nukes going on. We're like, you just keep on repeating there's nukes. I'm like, okay, who's getting nuked? So Well, <laughs> we're about to learn. <laughs> uh so we find out um that Amanda then goes to meet Nikolai with Ray. We find out that, you know, uh Ray and Amanda and Chloe and Buck aren't the only ones with good news. Oh yeah. Uh uh Hattie's expecting. She's gonna have the Antichrist, baby. Yeah, and uh that I oh god of all the puritanical bullshit to pull right here they have to highlight the fact that the two of them aren't married right? I even highlight that that the good guys get married the literal devil does not fuck you you said uh, Amanda didn't uh, says I didn't realize that you were married and it says she knew full well they weren't and then Hattie says oh he's gonna make an honest woman of me yet which just was a weird line it's really bad man and I feel like I said I always feel bad for Hattie um Bruce recaps things are gonna get worse gonna get real bad as the other four horsemen set out because remember Carpathia is the horse of strife he is the white horse that comes out conquering and to conquer means that red is up next so go back to Chicago. Nikolai requests a private meeting with Ray and basically says, hey, things are getting bad. I need you to circulate a false flight plan because there's some, some stuff going down. Doesn't really tell Ray what. They find out as they get back to Chicago. Bruce has just caught a random bug from all his travels uh, and has literally gone into a coma. Yeah, he, he got some weird bug in Indonesia and he's just been in the emergency room for a while. Yeah, so the four, meaning uh, Amanda, Ray, Chloe, Buck, all kind of pile into a car to go find Bruce at the hospital. We are literally like rushing to the conclusion. This is like in the last few pages. Right, and uh, real quick, just want to mention, Fitzhugh calls and just like, hey, you at home, bud, uh, to Buck? And Buck's like, uh, no. Uh, he's like, yeah, I'm glad you're uh, not at home. And he's just like, wait, what are you talking about? It's just just good you're not home. Uh, okay, when are you going to be home? Probably about like, I don't know, probably uh, four days. And he's like, perfect, click. Like, it's just a few lines of dialogue before like, and he makes sure that Buck is like going to be safe and then hangs up. Uh, we find that um, they go to see Bruce and they get stuck in traffic. The police and now global community peacekeeping troops are redirecting traffic because militias have taken over a military base after they've attacked Washington, D.C., backed by U.S. militia, Egypt, and the U.K. Ugh. So World War III has kicked off. Egypt came at New Babylon. Heathrow Airport got nuked. Yeah, that was... 
So our first nuke of the series finally got used. Yeah, they went at Heathrow Airport, which like, wow. Like, that's a big one, like, just period. That's not one you want to nuke. Like, that's a massive airport connecting to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Nikolai goes live on TV to say, the beautiful capital of the United States has been laid to waste. Rest assured, no enemy of peace will survive. And like, okay, to be fair to Nikolai and to the GC, the militias... And Egypt and the UK started this. Mm -hmm. They struck first. This is retaliatory. This dude is kind of bringing about world peace. Y'all did this. Mm -hmm. All right? Like, oh, the global community is so bad. No, they're retaliating. Like, that just bothered me that they were framing it that way. And I know he's the bad guy. Like, don't at me. I know he's the bad guy, but still right there's that there that could have been written just a little bit better we're like because like that you see like write some tom clancy shit where it's a false flag operation and giving nikolai an excuse to nuke somebody yeah because like carpathia is already getting frustrated so at least kind of like show him making the first move like, i could write a better left behind series than these guys i swear that's <laughs> <laughs> a big drop in quality from the first one so Let's get to the end. And then finally, the last few pages. We get Rayford, leading up to this, Rayford was trying to get to the hospital that Bruce was at just to check up on him and like bring him back to the church because stuff is starting to go down. The hospital got like hit with some bombs. Yeah. We get Rayford rushing to the scene. On foot. And trying to find Bruce. And when he goes up to a, a hospital, like e- EMT worker, he's like, hey, I'm looking for Bruce Barnes, ICU. Where is he? And she pretty much goes, everyone who is in the ICU is over there. And there's a small row of dead bodies. She looks at the tag and it's Bruce. And he's just like, can, can you check if he still has a pulse? I'm like, sir, like the, the everyone that is in this line is uh, has already been proclaimed dead. He's like, just, just check for me, man. Check for me. Or she's like, okay, okay. And she checks and Bruce Barnes is dead. And I'll, I'll admit, this got me. Yeah. Like I, I was listening to the, the, this on audiobook. When this came up, I, I verbally screamed, no. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when in episode one of this book, when I talked about how Bruce was the glue that was holding the team together. Well, they just lost the glue. Yeah, they did. And then the book ends with the line, the red horse of the apocalypse was on the rampage. There we go. All right. Tribulation Force is in the can. I'm not sure if that got picked up on Mike, but I just threw the book across. I heard it. I like, heard I'm, it. I'm finally done with Tribulation Force. Oh, we can move on. But like, hey, look, that's a great moment there at the end. I don't think we need to we need to downplay the fact that like it did kind of get good toward the end. It got bad too. Like it got real bad. Yeah, it got it got like yelling worthy mad. Yeah. Or bad. Yes, but it did. you know. Oh, God. But we're finally F's in the chat for Bruce. Yeah, he was a real one. He was a real one. Pour one out. Yeah, and next week we'll be able to do our recap and talk about some of the stuff and elaborate on some of the things with another off-the-record episode about Tribulation Force. But until then, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for putting up with this book with us. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. Until next time, don't nuke a major international airport. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. 
Uh, you can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. He can tempt you and lead you astray.